0: Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldotna, listener-supported public radio for the Central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Got several good features for you this month, as well as an interview. But as always, let's get started with beer news. Beer News. Bud Light is no longer the top-selling beer in the United States. Modelo Especial took over the top spot in May. According to an analysis of Nielsen data by consulting firm Bump Williams, Modelo represented more than 8% of retail beer sales in the four weeks ending June 3rd, while Bud Light was just above 7% during the same time period. San Francisco's Anchorage Brewing Company, which has its roots in the California gold rush era, will no longer produce its portfolio of beers for sale outside the state. Anchor Brewing spokesperson Sam Singer explained that the company is focusing on the California market because it accounts for 70% of its sales. Still, Singer said, it was a difficult decision based on challenging economic realities the company has faced for years. Another big change. Anchor Brewing will no longer make its iconic holiday beer, Christmas Ale. The spice-laden winter warmer has been a brewing tradition since 1975 and something that Northern California beer lovers look forward to every November. Singer said costly brewing and packaging requirements led to the change. It's also a time-intensive brewing process, he said. In early 2010, longtime owner Fritz Maytag sold Anchor Brewing to the Griffin Group, an investment and consulting company focused on beverage alcohol brands, which set about modernizing the brand. In 2017, Griffin Group sold Anchor to Sapporo Breweries, the Japanese brewing giant. The 2023 World Beer Cup winners have been announced. Only one winner was brewed in Alaska. Trappist in Paradise from 49th State Brewing in Anchorage took the silver medal in the American-Belgian-style ale category. A panel of 272 judges from 26 countries evaluated 10,213 entries from 2,376 breweries representing 51 countries. Tickets for the Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival are now on sale. This year's festival will be on Saturday, August 12th, at the Soldotna Sports Center. The festival is produced by the Soldotna Rotary, and all proceeds go to support charity. Kenai River Brewing is now open seven days a week. On Sunday and Monday, it will be offering a modified menu, including wings, a charcuterie plate, french fries, chicken fingers, pretzel sticks with cheese, and mozzarella sticks. St. Elias Brewing has a new and simpler logo. The redesign is to support offering its flagship beers in cans. The brewery is now offering its regular brews in 16-ounce four-packs. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we'll have our first feature on the short, unhappy life of Prince Brow Brewing.
1: Art lovers, this is your chance to win an original painting by master artist Jim Evenson. Jim homesteaded in Kiski with his family and was well known for his artwork throughout Alaska. KDLL is sharing a rare opportunity to own an original, professionally framed Jim Evenson painting. Only 100 tickets will be sold. All proceeds help KDLL meet our federal grant match requirement. More information and raffle tickets available at kdll.org.
2: They're beautiful, but they're also detrimental to
0: Alaska's forest and riparian ecosystems. European bird cherry, or Mayday trees, and Canada red chook cherry trees disrupt native vegetation and negatively impact wildlife.
2: State forestry officials recommend that the public avoid planting these trees and remove them whenever possible. For more information, please visit the Alaska Department of Natural Resources Community Forestry
0: website. This message is sponsored by the Alaska Community Forestry Program, Aired by the Alaska Broadcasters Association and this station. I recently saw a post on Facebook in which someone was offering cans of Prince Brow as the, quote, perfect Father's Day gift, end quote. It got me thinking that perhaps this would be a good time to review the history of the first brewery in Alaska to open its doors after World War II. What follows is excerpted from my book on the history of beer and brewing in our state, Alaska Beer, Liquid Gold in the Land of the Midnight Sun. In 1974, there was another gold rush in Alaska, or to be more precise, there was a rush for black gold. The discovery of massive oil deposits on the North Slope necessitated the construction of the 800 mile long Trans-Alaska Pipeline from the oil fields at Prudhoe Bay to the ice-free port of Valdez on Prince William Sound. To perform such a titanic feat of engineering, workers poured into Alaska from all over the world, creating a boom such as the state has never seen before nor has since. Before it was completed, some 70,000 men and women had a hand in the pipeline project. Wages were excellent with skilled tradesmen earning double what they could have made working in the lower 48, plus free food and lodging. Overtime was the norm, especially during the long days of the Alaskan summer. During the winter, it really was the Klondike stampede all over again, right down to the isolation that gripped remote camps when the winter storms closed the roads and grounded the flights to Anchorage. Alcohol was one of the few distractions available, and the workers made the most of it. To this day, Alaskans still tell tales of the wild doings at bars, where pipeline workers blew their large paychecks on mad benders. The excesses of the pipeline boom era still cast a shadow on the state's liquor laws today. At that time, it was common for bars in Alaska to compete by offering happy hours with drink specials. Bars commonly offered two drinks for the price of one, and even three or four drinks for the price of one during happy hour was not unheard of. Naturally, these sorts of offers encouraged massive overconsumption and gave plenty of ammunition to the anti-alcohol forces. As a result, during the 1986 revision of the state liquor laws, all such special drink offers were outlawed. Even in present-day Alaska, any discount in the price of an alcoholic beverage must be in effect for at least one week and must be offered to all patrons equally. A ladies' night with cheaper drinks for women or a happy hour with drink specials, so very common in the lower 48 or against the law on the last frontier. The governor of Alaska during much of this period was the late Jay Hammond, a revered figure among Alaskans today. However, like most such revered leaders, Hammond excited considerable criticism and opposition when he was actually in government. Reverence comes easier in retrospect. Hammond is most famous as the architect of the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, designed to convert some of the massive oil wealth the state had begun to receive after the pipeline became operational into long-term investments that would eventually generate revenue for the state. He recognized that North Slope oil was a non-renewable resource and worried that the day might come when it could no longer be counted on to fund the apparatus of state government. In 1976, he convinced the legislature and people of Alaska to amend the state constitution so that a minimum of 25% of future oil revenue would be used to fund an investment corporation, the idea being that when the oil finally ran out, the returns on this investment could support state government ad infinitum, hence the permanent in its name. Hammond's true genius was also to structure the fund to pay annual dividends to each and every citizen of Alaska from its excess earnings, thus ensuring that any future politician who had the temerity to consider tapping the fund for his or her pet project would face instant and vociferous opposition from the public. Even today, over 40 years later, any suggestion to touch the fund's principle remains the proverbial third rail of Alaska's politics. Another of Governor Hammond's ideas was to build businesses in Alaska that could sustain themselves and state revenues during the ups and downs of oil prices on the world market. One of the ideas proposed was to establish a vibrant dairy and barley business in the subarctic, supplying residents with fresh beef and dairy produced in Alaska. A report, issued at Hammond's request by University of Alaska agricultural professors, supported the feasibility of the concept, allowing the governor to proclaim, quote, it is in fact possible that Alaska will be the prime agricultural state in the not-so-distant future. To support this vision of a developing agricultural sector, the state started a lottery to sell off 70,000 acres of land in the interior on which barley would be grown. Grain was planted, and the state bought nearly $1 million worth of railroad grain cars. Twenty of them painted bright blue with the words, Alaska Agriculture Serving Alaska and the World. Then it began building an $8.5 million grain terminal in Seward. Valdez, the town with the deep water port and the terminus of the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline, was envious. So it built an even bigger and better grain terminal that ended up costing the city upwards of $30 million. There was vast optimism that Alaska would soon be producing bumper crops of barley. At this point, it occurred to someone in state government that you could do something with barley besides feeding it to dairy cows or shipping it to the lower 48. Why not use it to brew beer in Alaska? The search was on to find someone willing to invest in a brewery in Alaska to turn what was expected to be mountains of barley into cans of beer to sell to those 70,000 pipeline workers with paychecks burning holes in their pockets. After all, beer consumption statewide had gone up 16.2% even before the first section of the pipeline was buried in the ground. The Anchorage Daily News reported at the time that beer sales skyrocketed by 51% in Fairbanks, ground zero for the construction boom. With statistics like these, it did not take long for the state to find that willing investor, specifically the Radeberger Group from West Germany. Producers of such well-known brands as Radeberger Pilsner, Jeever, and Schoenhofer Wiesen the Rataburger Group created a new subsidiary to build and operate a brewery in Alaska, Prinz Brow, Alaska Incorporated. By the mid-1970s, Anchorage had become far and away the largest city in Alaska, so there was no question that the new brewery should be located there. The state sweetened the deal by offering Prinz Brow a tax break of 56 cents per case for beer brewed in the plant being built in South Anchorage's Huffman Business Park. The brewery represented an $11.7 million investment that employed 40 locals brewing lager beers made in accordance with the Reinheitsgebot, the German purity law. Two beers were eventually produced, Brow and Brow Extra, and they were packaged in both bottles and cans. Assessing the future, Prinzbrow General Manager Jared Konitzki sees few clouds, the Anchorage Daily News wrote at the time. Although it will take a few years to repay the investment, Alaska beer consumption has been jumping and will probably continue to increase. Unfortunately, Konitsky's weather forecast turned out to be wrong, dead wrong. Prince Brow was out of business by 1979. What went wrong? As is usual in the case of spectacular failures such as Prince Brow's, there were many factors that combined to bring about the disaster. First, the state's plan to grow barley was slow to get going. The first crop didn't even make it into the ground until 1978, by which point Prince Bow was already struggling. It also turned out that the strain of barley used didn't grow particularly well in Alaska due to the short summers. This was followed by a series of events right out of the Old Testament, a drought, a grasshopper infestation, and finally, roaming bison stomping through the fields. In the end, Alaska had invested $100 million in the project with nothing to show for it but empty railroad car, grain cars and useless grain terminals. So much for Hammond's vision of Alaska as a prime agricultural state. Still, while the lack of cheap and abundant local grown barley was a disappointment, it shouldn't have scuttled Prinsbrow. After all, what about all those thirsty pipeline workers? It turned out that most of those pipeline workers had been drinking some other brew somewhere else long before coming north, and they wanted to drink their beer in Alaska, too. Beer companies from the lower 48 battled for a share in the small but thirsty Alaska market. Olympia Brewing went so far as to sign on as the major sponsor of the Iditarod Trail sled dog race in 1984. As a new player on the scene, Prince Brow had no brand loyalty to help it out. Plus, the brewery immediately found itself embroiled in a labor dispute. With skilled workers in such high demand, the pipeline era was the high-water mark of union power in Alaska, and Prinz Brow was a non-union enterprise. The local labor leaders did everything in their power to oppose and undermine the brewery, including pickets and union-sponsored boycotts of its beer. And if its labor troubles were not enough, it seemed as though the company did everything it could to distance itself from Alaska and emphasize its Germanic roots. During its construction phase, the company held a public contest to choose the name for its flagship beer. Not surprisingly, the suggestion focused on Alaskan themes with submissions like Grizzly Beer, King Salmon Beer, Mount McKinley Beer, and the like. After a careful consideration, the managers of the brewery decided to call their flagship beer Prince by choosing to forego almost any connection to the state, the attitude they projected seemed to be that as Germans, they knew all there was to know about brewing beer and that Alaskans should be grateful that they had come here to impart their beer wisdom. While the labels did mention that the beer was brewed using pure Alaska water, it seemed almost an afterthought. Barley shortages, brand loyalties, labor troubles, culture clashes— They all played a part in Prince Bao's singularly rapid demise. Still, the single most devastating misstep the company made was also the most simple. It sold a batch of bad beer to the public. Every brewer worth his salt knows the truth of the old saying, you only get one chance to make a first impression. If the first impression a customer has with your beer is bad, it will very likely be a long, long time before he or she gives you a second chance, if ever. Oh, and they'll probably tell ten of their friends how lousy your beer was, too. At the time, many beer cans still had steel bodies with aluminum tops. Use of the all-aluminum can of today was growing, but was still not universal. In Prinz Brow's case, the initial consignment of cans they received in Anchorage had a defective lining, allowing iron from the steel bodies to leach into the beer. Iron in beer leads to harsh and unpleasant flavors. For a German lager, such as brewed by Prinzbrau, the maximum acceptable level of iron would be less than 40 parts per million. The average level among such beers is less than 12 parts per million. In comparison, Some of the cans Prinz Brow put on the market tested in a laboratory at over 200 parts per million of iron. One shudders to think just how bad it must have tasted. With such a series of missteps, Prinz Brow would have needed to produce a truly exceptional beer to overcome them. Unfortunately, what it sent to market, when it was not contaminated with iron, turned out to be little different from the beers of Olympia, Rainier, and other breweries that were flooding into the state. Just another bland and inoffensive lager with little to offer in the way of flavor. So with nothing in the plus column to set it apart and lots in the minus column to hold it back, Prince Brow limped along until 1979 when a long shoreman strike in Seattle cut off its supplies of malted barley, forcing it to cease brewing completely. By the time the strike was settled and shipments could be resumed, the estimated cost to restart the brewery was in excess of $1 million. The investors at its German parent company declined to sink any more capital in what they now perceived as a very bad deal, so Prinz Brau closed its stores for good. The brewery equipment was eventually disassembled and shipped to the Philippines. The building that housed it was demolished. And today, the only thing to show that it ever existed is the occasional forgotten six-pack of Prince Brow cans discovered when cleaning out a garage, basement, or attic in Alaska. Up next, we'll have an interview with Matt Barnaby of Barnaby Brewing in Juneau, Alaska. This is KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldata.
1: July 24th to 28th is Astronauts Alive Day Camp at the Challenger Learning Center of Alaska. First through third graders blast off into space where they explore the resources they need to stay alive. Challenger academies provide an inviting environment where youth can have fun while continuing and expanding their curiosity for learning. Registration is open. More information available at akchallenger.org.
3: Hello, this is John Jackson, host and producer of Deeper Cuts Radio. Deeper Cuts features an artist, band, or topic. We play great music not often heard, mixing and mingling genre and era, creating a unique playlist for your listening pleasure. Tune in Fridays at 9pm on KDLL 91.9 FM in beautiful Kenai, Alaska. Enjoy.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. Up next, we've got an interview with Matt Barnaby of Barnaby Brewing in Juneau. So, how are things going?
2: Are you guys getting a lot of cruise ship business in? Yeah, so we're officially uh, we're in the thick of it. Cruise ship traffic uh, every day of the week. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're staying busy, making beer as quick as we can, and, and serving a lot of folks.
0: How about what your operation looks like? What size, brew house, size of your tap room, all that kind of good stuff?
2: We are located downtown Juneau, right behind City Hall, just off of the the main strip there. We are a three-barrel brew house, and then we've got four three-barrel fermenters, and then a seven-barrel that we can double batch into. Family-owned and operated here in Juneau.
0: Great, and what are your hours like this time of year?
2: Yeah, so summertime we run seven days a week. And we're open from three till eight.
0: And how many beers do you have on typically?
2: Yeah, so we have 12 draft total or 12 uh, tap handles. We reserve one of those for a non-alcoholic option, which is typically root beer, but sometimes we do some fun stuff with that too. And then we have 11 beers on draft. And then depending on special releases, we'll have a variety of bottles available.
0: And your stuff is strictly for sale there at the brewery, right? You don't distribute anywhere else?
2: Yeah, I would say we probably sell 95% of our beer directly out of the uh, brewery. Uh, We do have a couple wholesale accounts that we'll distribute, to, But even all of those except for one is located here in Juneau.
0: Okay. And where's the one that's not?
2: Tent City Tap House in Anchorage.
0: That's what I figured. Tent City and Anchorage, they seem to go to a lot of trouble to get stuff from around the state. So how long has it been that you've been open in your new location? I remember, I mean, you were closed for over a year after the fire at your original place. So how long have you been
2: in the new spot? A yeah, new spot we opened uh, just before COVID. So what was that, okay. 2020, 2021, yeah. somewhere in that range?
0: The fun started in the spring of 2020, as I recall. So,
2: Right, yeah. So I think we're in our third summer in that location.
0: And uh, you weathered the...
2: The COVID storm, all right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was definitely a challenging time, ever evolving uh, set of regulations and rules to follow. But yeah, we're here, and uh, I don't want to say we're fully back to normal, but uh, cruise ship traffic's resumed and our local traffic's resumed. So yeah, it's going well. What beers do you have on tap right now? Yeah, so we actually have some. Uh, I like to call them project beers. Some people like to call them collaboration beers. Uh, but we actually have uh, our Pink Boots Society. Beer on top right now, we're getting pretty low on it, but uh, Pink Boots Society gets with Yakima Valley Chiefs and uh, they develop a blend and then that goes out to breweries and then we brewed a hazy IPA with that beer. And then we also participated in the Native Lands Beer Project, headed up by Bow and Arrow, and that is a uh, Mexican lager. The project was to locally source blue corn of course, here in uh, Juneau, uh, blue corn doesn't grow. Um, but we were able to find a, a heritage blue corn from the Cherokee Nation, and so we use that in that beer. And in fact, uh, I don't know if it's on tap right now, but we just sent some of that up to Tent City. What else you got? So those are the two sort of big ones. We've got our uh, anniversary beer, which should be coming out in the next month, uh, even though our anniversary is back in April. Uh, like most things, uh, kind of caught up to us and wasn't quite ready. Um, but this is uh, another one of our big beer projects, so um, we're waiting for lab results to come back, but we expect it to be over 18%. Whoa. Uh, the goal is over 20 but we'll see what the lab comes back and tells us. But that's a big, large stout flavored with coconut, and then we did some cool stuff with wood. We've got some oak spirals in there and then some maple wood spirals.
0: Wow. Sounds uh, extremely interesting. Yeah. Are you gonna be taking that one to the uh, barley wine
2: fest in January, maybe? Hopefully, yeah. We're hoping um, we're we're actually starting to look at the festival season now. Although that might sound weird, but yeah, fall and winter time, we're starting to look at the festival scene, and uh, we're hoping to be able to participate in that festival this year. And it seems like a good fit for a festival like that.
0: Well, if you're going to talk about winter festivals, I'm contractually obligated to uh, try and tout you on the Frozen River Festival in Soldatna here on the peninsula in February. Because uh, you haven't lived till you've done a uh, beer festival outdoors in Alaska in February.
2: Yeah, that that actually tends to run on my birthday weekend, too. So uh, it'd be a cool little birthday trip to to get up there. So it's uh, penciled in and we'll see if we can make it happen. All sure.
0: right. We'd love to see you. So uh, let's talk a little bit more detail about uh, your background. How did you get into commercial brewing? Did you come from home brewing or what was your background?
2: Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, uh, my interest started in home brewing. I've always really liked the idea of sort of manufacturing my own food. So whether that's you know, going out and harvesting food, creating it yourself, that was always an interest. And so that kind of led me into beer manufacturing it was one of those if i can do this myself let's do it i did that for several years and then at the time i had worked for the state they were laying a lot of people off i was a little nervous that i was going to get laid off and so uh, the brewery was my backup plan if that happened and that's sort of what i don't want to say forced me into it but that's what got the brewery up and running never got laid off but (laughs) the uh yeah so the catalyst for the brewery starting was a fear of unemployment
0: (laughs) wow Fear is an excellent motivator. So uh, yeah. did you have any formal commercial training, or did you just uh, pick it up, OJT?
2: Yeah, a lot of it was OJT. Uh, in the initial planning stages, I reached out to a lot of other breweries and were able to you know, do some collaboration beers with them and see how other breweries do it. Uh, the cool thing about the brewing world is everybody's got their own little thing that they do a little bit different. And so it was cool to be able to travel around, see how other people do things, and then kind of take those ideas and create our own processes
0: yeah the other thing i always think is great about the brewing world is everybody's happy to share nobody is uh right. everybody you know looks at it as a, a real uh collegiate enterprise so guys are happy to happy to share and, and show you what they're doing it's there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of trade secrets in the game how often are you brewing i mean this time of year i'm sure it's a busy Busy time, are you finding yourself having to brew a lot on that three barrel system to keep up with demand?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, summertime, we stay super busy. uh Wintertime, you know, slows down a little bit, but that also gives us a little reprieve from having to work all summer long. It's a little bit of a trickery game because, you know, you got to start planning for summer in January. It seems like every year, I don't want to say I get caught off guard, but I have that moment of like, I need to start brewing now because <laughs> in two months we're going to be packed to the gills. But yeah, it's that time of the year where you know a tank gets empty one day, the next day we're filling it back up. So, yeah, summertime it's a ever evolving or revolving process for us.
0: Speaking of January, 1 January, the new laws take effect that were passed last year. Are you planning to make any changes, alterations with uh, your business model based on what's going to become available in uh, January?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, as weird as this may sound, that project's still kind of evolving right so uh, alcohol board's still actually writing the policy in relationship to the uh, legislation so we are paying attention to that you know there's the increase in time but uh, if you look at it kind of big picture it's it's not a huge impact but we will adjust to that and then obviously uh live events or you know even at a limited amount we plan on taking full advantage of that uh we're not exactly sure what that's going to look like yet but uh yeah, we plan on taking advantage of the changes.
0: How big is your uh, tap room there? Have you got room to bring in a band or
2: anything like that? Maybe a singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Our tap room itself, I want to say, is like 600 square feet, and then the brewery is about the same size. We're just under 1,400 square feet. So, no, once again, I haven't fully looked at the regulations completely, but we're hoping to maybe do some bigger stuff, but maybe off site. But that sort of depends on what they end up deciding as far as how permitting and all that's going to work.
0: Yeah, from what I gather about your setup there, you're not really in a position to take advantage of getting a restaurant-eating-place license or any of those options that are now going to be available.
2: Right, but and that, one of the things that we've looked at, which is a bit of a challenge in Juno, is uh, potential to host like a block party. Because of how we're situated, we can actually – with permitting from the city we could actually block off our block there doesn't really have an impact on traffic or other businesses hosting some sort of like outdoor block party but you know with Juno being as rainy as it is that comes with its own uh, set of challenges
0: well sometimes you just got to drink beer in the rain
2: <laughs> i want uh, a good raincoat
0: what's your uh, have you got any uh, particular styles that you favor what kind of beers do you like to brew what kind of beers do you like to drink
2: yeah so we sort of present ourselves as uh, being a low volume, high variety. I like the idea that every time you come in, there's something new or different. We brew just about every salad beer you can imagine. In fact, today we've got a Belgian pale ale coming out. We brew a lot seasonally. So obviously summertime we're doing our lighter beers, the more, uh, I don't know if this is a good term, but the more public friendly beers. So, you know, hazy IPAs of, for, for a while now, been a very popular style. So summertime, we're trying to appeal to that audience. And then in the wintertime, when things slow down a little bit for us, we get to to play and kind of do what I like to do, uh, which is like, I don't want to say it's my specialty, but I really enjoy brewing those really big beers, high ABV beers. I feel like that's a, a challenge that mm-hmm. uh, comes with some uniqueness. So that's the, the big beers are my passion project. And then we sort of tailor are brewing seasonally based on the market.
0: Are you hooked in any way with the uh, cruise lines or anything? I mean, I know thousands of people come to Juno during a given day in the summer. How do they find you? Do they already have to know about you or do you is there a way that you can advertise to uh, all those thousands of people on those ships?
2: Yeah, so we we are uh, members of Travel Juno, which does a lot of the uh, heavy lifting of marketing for a lot of businesses here in Juneau. Um, so they've been a great resource for getting the word out. But in the craft brew industry, it's really neat in the fact that a lot of it's word of mouth, right? People hear about it. They might do a quick Google search of breweries in Juneau. Uh, so that goes a long way for us. And then uh, social media tends to uh, provide us a lot of good marketing opportunities.
0: Now, the reason I ask is I just did a show. Uh, it isn't out yet, but I just did a show Uh, podcast with a guy who does one called Brewery Travels and I was just wondering if people were
2: you know how are people finding you? Yeah I think it's it's really all of the above for us you know participating in competitions kind of helps us get our name out there participating in the festivals helps we've done a couple podcasts it's really any opportunity that we can to get our name out there seems to to benefit us from a marketing standpoint and kind of hitting it from all angles.
0: Speaking of festivals, I assume you made it to Haynes this year?
2: We did, yeah. Best festival I've ever been to is uh, (laughs) Haynes. I encourage, when I talk to the cruise ship passengers in the tap room, I tell them if they ever come back to Alaska, it needs to be Memorial Day weekend and they need to go to Haynes.
0: Yeah, it's a great festival. Uh, I assume you made it to the Brewer's Dinner the Friday before, right? I did, yeah.
2: Yeah. So there was, uh, (laughs) the weather wasn't so great this year so there's some travel uh, hiccups in the way there but yeah we were able to make it to the brewer's dinner and then uh, participate with the festival on saturday uh flight got canceled leaving so i ended up having to spend an extra night in haynes but uh, they were able to get me out the next day
0: well, yeah i always found that that brewer's dinner to be kind of the highlight of the whole affair the festival's great but that the dinner beforehand was just uh, absolutely top notch
2: the folks there in haynes do a great job uh, the community as a whole is super supportive and uh you know it's the one festival we we'll, we won't miss so
0: well hey matt thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today i do appreciate it if you could do me a favor please say hello to darby for me i will that's right she's from your neck of the woods she's from our neck of the woods she used to sell at our farmers market so uh hope she's doing well for you there
2: she yeah we love darby she's doing a great job for us and uh
0: yeah. All righty. Well, hey, again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and you have a good summer, man. Same to you. Thank you. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next
4: segment. In some of my songs I have casually mentioned The fact that I like to drink beer This little song is more to the point roll out the barrel and lend me your ears i like beer it makes me a jolly good fellow i like beer it helps me unwind and sometimes it makes me feel mellow,
3: makes
2: feel mellow.
4: whiskey's too rough champagne costs too much but to put my mouth in gear. This little refrain should help me explain. As a matter of fact, I like beer. He
3: likes beer.
4: My wife often frowns when we're out on the town. And I'm wearing a suit and a tie. She's sipping vermouth and she thinks I'm uncool. I yell as the waiter goes by? I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind, and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Makes him feel
3: mellow.
4: Whiskey's too rough, champagne costs too much, vodka puts my mouth in gear. While this little refrain Should help me explain As a matter of fact I like beer He
3: likes beer
4: (laughs) Last night I dreamed That I passed from the scene And I went to a place so sublime All the water was clear And tasted like beer Then they turned it all into wine I like beer It makes me a jolly good Me unwind and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Makes him feel mellow. Whiskey's too rough, champagne costs too much, vodka puts my mouth in gear. All oh, this little refrain should help me explain as a matter of fact, I love beer. Yeah!
0: We're going to talk about the eternal question of which came first, beer or bread. For over half a century, one of the perennial arguments among anthropologists has been why mankind decided to shift from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to one based on agriculture. Prior to the middle of the 20th century, the subject was not really open to debate. Given the obvious, in hindsight, benefits that accrued from agriculture and the bread it produced, cities, writing, trade, etc., the assumption was that of course people settled to begin growing cereal grains in order to make bread. However, in 1953, the archaeologist Robert Braidwood posed this question to his colleagues during a now-famous symposium. Could the discovery that a mash of fermented grain yielded a palatable and nutritious beverage have acted as a greater stimulant towards the experimental selection and breeding of the cereals than the discovery of flour and bread making? One would assume that the utilization of wild cereals, along with edible roots and berries, as a source of collected food would have been in existence for millennia before their domestication, in a meaningful sense, took place. Was the subsequent impetus to this domestication bread or beer? While raged might be too strong a word, the academic discussion of this intriguing question went back and forth for about 60 years, with neither side being able to make any sort of compelling argument for its position. Food is a more basic need, and in the absence of evidence, most folks believe bread seemed the more likely spark to a change as revolutionary as domesticating crops. Others argued that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle provided plenty of nutrition. What it lacked was alcohol, whose mind and mood-altering effects would certainly have been in great demand amongst our Neolithic ancestors. As a beer lover, you can probably guess which side of the argument I personally come down on. But it seemed as though the argument would defy any true resolution due to the absence of any hard evidence one way or the other. However, all that changed in 2012. Gobekli Tepe is an agricultural site in Turkey that has challenged foundational ideas about the transition humans took from Neolithic hunter-gatherers to becoming settled agriculturalists. The site consists of a number of buildings. Previously, when archaeologists unearthed sites of human construction, they assumed that the structures dated from a period of civilization. Buildings equaled settlements. But Gobekli Tepe stood this theory on its head. Its buildings are of a particular type. Marked by T-shaped pillars up to 20 feet high, weighing 16 tons, archaeologists believe them to be worship sites, not dwellings. More intriguingly, there are no permanent settlements nearby. These structures were erected 12,000 years ago, but not as part of an early human civilization, but rather a precursor to it. One of the best ways to comprehend just how ancient Gobekli Tepe is is to compare it to other things that are considered incredibly ancient. Gobekli Tepe predates Stonehenge, one of the most famous prehistoric construction feats in human history, by over 6,000 years. To really put things into perspective, there was about as much time between the construction of Gobekli Tepe and the construction of Stonehenge as there was between the construction of Stonehenge and today. Even more fascinating from the beer lover's point of view was the discovery of six large limestone vessels, these barrel or trough-shaped vessels with capacities up to 160 liters were noted to carry gray-black adhesions. Analyses made on these substances return positive for calcium oxalate, also known as beer stone, a substance which develops in the course of the soaking, mashing, and fermenting of grain. So here we have evidence of brewing taking place at Gobekli Tepe well before settled agriculture. Even more intriguingly, results from genetic analysis undertaken by a team from the Norwegian University of Life Sciences in Oslo have suggested that the earliest domestication of grain occurred in the very near vicinity of Gobleki-Tepe. Given that Gobleki-Tepe seems to be primarily a ritual religious site, it's easy to postulate that hunter-gatherers from the surrounding area would gather there periodically to worship and labor on building and expanding the site. The entire complex was probably built over several generations, just like the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe. Production and consumption of alcoholic beverages in ritual feasting was probably a key element in the social glue that could bring these disparate and nomadic groups together on a regular basis alcohol serves both ritual and social functions and has a magical transcendent mind-altering capacity unlike food which appears naturally in the environment alcohol must be manufactured humans did need to settle down to produce food if the structures of gobekli tepe tell us anything It's that 12,000 years ago, our ancestors had enough surplus time and energy that they could use it to build the equivalent of a Neolithic cathedral. The motivation to produce beer, a substance they could not reliably produce without agriculture, would be a pretty obvious one for Neolithic people looking to spend more time partying, celebrating, and feasting. So while the debate is by no means 100% settled, arguments appear to be tilting strongly towards the beer side of the question. If true, this means we have beer to thank for all the blessings and problems that we have received from what we optimistically called civilization. As Homer Simpson says, here's to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. We'll be right back. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KTLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna.
1: There's nothing worse than driving Turnagain Pass with no cell service and nothing to listen to. But now you can download your favorite KTLL programs as podcasts to take with you wherever you go, whether you're hiking the Tugatch, skiing in the refuge, or just driving through a dead zone. Kenai Convo, The Evening News, Growing a Greener Kenai, and Drinking on the Last Frontier are all available on Apple Podcasts, or visit the podcast page on kdll.org
0: are you a gardener extraordinaire do you enjoy teaching and helping your fellow gardeners if so why not be a guest with me larry opperman on growing a greener kenai it's great fun and gardeners myself included enjoy learning new tips on becoming a better gardener if you're interested shoot me an email at growingagreenerkenai at kdll.org and we'll see about getting you on the show we broadcast live on the first and third saturday of the month 11 a.m on kdll 91.9 We're moving on to this month's segment of the Science of Brewing. This month we're going to be talking about malt. Malt's been called the soul of beer. It's the main fermentable providing the sugars that yeast use to create alcohol and carbonation. Malt has an influence on beer's aroma, alcohol level, body, color, flavor, and head retention. Barley is in many ways the perfect brewing grain. Not only does it contain a large reserve of starch that can be converted into sugar and a husk that makes a perfect filter bed, but barley contains the tools in the form of enzymes to do the job without adding anything but hot water. But unlike fruits such as grapes or apples, barley has some sophisticated defenses to keep yeast from consuming its sugars. First, grains like barley are armor-plated. A mature grain kernel has a skin so hard that no microbe or insect can penetrate it. Even we humans have to use stone or metal mills to crack it open. Then, once the grain is open, the fuel within has more protection. It's not stored as a simple sugar, as in fruits, but as a long-chain starch molecule that is too big for microorganisms such as yeast to attack. If the sugar molecule is a brick... The starch molecule is a brick wall. When the yeast runs into it, nothing happens. That's where we humans enter the picture. We harvest the barley grain and then modify it via malting into something the yeast can consume. In return, the yeast produces the alcohol we want. We've been engaged in this partnership with yeast for thousands of years, though we've actually understood what is going on for less than 200 Basically, when we modify our malt barley, we trick the grain into believing it should sprout. We do this by soaking it in water. Fresh barley has a moisture content commonly around 13%. This is raised often to more than 40% until the barley begins to germinate. Enzymes in the grain begin converting the starch molecules into simple sugars to feed the growing plant embryo. Small rootlets called chits begin to emerge. At this point, we interrupt the process and dry out the grain in a kiln. Reducing the moisture content to less than 4% kills the embryo and stabilizes the grain with lots of nice, simple sugars available for consumption by yeast. Malt is converted barley or other grains that have been steeped, germinated, heated, kilned, or roasted in a drum, cooled and dried, and then rested. The amount of time spent in the kiln or roasting drum and the maximum temperature reached are critical for determining what type of malt is produced. The Maillard reaction, sometimes called non-enzymatic browning, is the term used to collectively describe the chemistry of browning. It describes all the commonly encountered browning during cooking, including the char in a burger, the caramelly goodness of sautéed onions, and the roastiness of chocolate and coffee. Thanks to its impact on barley during the kilning process, it's a major player in beer's flavor and appearance. There are four basic malt types produced. Base malts are lightly kilned and can serve as the basis for the entire brew. Even in the darkest beers, such as stouts, base malts will make up most of the grain bill. Pilsners, Pale, Vienna, and Munich malts fall into this category. Kiln or lightly colored malts are used in small amounts, up to 20% of a recipe. Amber and brown malts fall into this category. Crystal or caramel malt is made in a special process where wet malt is stewed around 150 degrees Fahrenheit. The result is a glassy, crunchy texture and a wide range of caramel, raisin, or burnt sugar flavors. Roasted malts and grains include chocolate and various shades of black malt. Typically, these heavily roasted malts make up less than 10% of a recipe. The end result of all this is to produce barley malt, which the brewer can simply soak in hot water to produce the sugary wort, which will be the fuel for the yeast and eventually become a delicious beer. This is Bill Howell drinking on the last frontier on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna.
1: The Salmon Run Series returns. Join the Kenai Watershed Forum at Salteshi Trails in Soldatna, 6.15 p.m. Wednesdays, July 5th through August 2nd. Register for all five races for a discount or register week to week. And don't forget the kids run starting at 6. Run routes and trailheads change week to week. There's a virtual option, too. KenaiWatershed.org for registration and more information. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday nights from 7 to 9pm right here on KDLL 91.9 FM to catch the show Pickled Beats where I, your host, Josie Oliva, will be playing you a curated set of music inspired by an obscure subgenre or an oddly specific theme.
0: Wiesbier is the classical wheat beer of Bavaria and one of Germany's greatest and most distinctive beer styles. Wiesbier means white beer in German. The name derives from the yellowish-white tinge that is imparted by the pale wheat and barley malts from which the beer is made. Outside of Bavaria, most Weissbier is known as Hefwiesen, literally yeast wheat in German. This name derives from the fact that it is a wheat-based beer that is usually packaged unfiltered with plenty of yeast turbidity in the finished beer. There's also a filtered version known as Kristallweizen. By German law, a beer that is labeled Hefwiesen, Wiesbier, or beer must be made with at least 50% malted wheat. Most German beers are made with 60-70% to 70% malted wheat with barley malt making up the remaining malt bill. Wee Spears are among a very few top-fermenting ales made in Bavaria, an area most famous for being the birthplace of bottom-fermenting lagers. Wee Spears are fermented by a family of closely related yeast strains that produce many of the classical flavors of the style. The proper Hefeweizen yeast is a top fermenting Bavarian strain known as Torlospora del Brucai. This yeast produces phenols and esters that impart banana, bubblegum, nutmeg, and clove flavors. Whereas the wheat itself gives the beer a certain lightness on the palate and a dash of acidity, the intense aromas that characterize wheat beer are all the products of fermentation by this specialized yeast. Some breweries outside of Germany, particularly in the United States, Use the word Hefeweizen to describe and market beers fermented with standard ale or lager yeast. These beers are misnamed. They have no classical Hefeweizen character and should be more properly styled as American wheat beers. A true-to-style Hefeweizen ranges in color from straw to medium amber, is hopped with German noble hop varieties, and has an alcohol by volume of 4.9 to 5.6%. Besides the half and crystal weizen, wee Wiese come in several other variations. Dunkelweizen, literally dark white beer, is a wee made using dark rather than pale barley malt. Weizenbach is a box-style lager using malted wheat as part of its malt bill. There are also even rare examples of weizen Doppelbachs and weizen icebox, stronger versions of the weizenbach. Here's an interesting note. In Germany, Hefwiesen is never served with the slices of lemon that became strangely common in the United States in the 1980s and 90s. The aroma of the lemon overwhelms the beer's delicate aroma, and the oil of the lemon peel quickly destroys the beer's trademark head. American tourists who ask for slices of lemon in Bavarian beer gardens are generally greeted with faint smiles of pity. Hefe are relatively low-intensity beers, meaning that they will pair admirably with lighter summer fare. Lighter fruit dishes and cellfish, along with salads with citrus vinegar dressings, all work very well with this style. Dishes that focus on fresh herbs, olives, or rosemary also typically pair well. A personal favorite of mine is matching it up with a rich tomato and basil soup. If you're interested in trying out this style and want to find some locally produced versions of it, St. Elias Brewing Company usually adds a half of eason to its summer lineup, serving it in the traditional oversized glass, and Kenai River Brewing offers its honeymoon half year-round in cans and on draft. Looking further afield, Anchorage's King Street Brewing's version is available locally in cans, and there are several imported examples available in bottles as well. That's it for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I hope you enjoyed our show. As a final parting thought, here's one from W.C. Fields. A woman drove me to drink, and I didn't even have the decency to thank her. Until next month, cheers.
3: Are you ready for the next big earthquake, tsunami, or volcanic eruption? According to the seismic.alaska.org, seven of the ten biggest earthquakes in the US happened in Alaska, and Alaska has an average of one magnitude, seven to eight earthquake per year. Knowledge is power, and being prepared will help us survive these potential natural disasters. Be resilient, Alaska. Preparedness helps us all. This message is brought to you by the students at Marathon School in partnership with nonprofit Creative Flow Collective.
1: The Kenai Art Center has Making Her Mark on display through June, featuring paintings and ceramic sculptures by Charlotte Coots, Abby Ulin, and Shannon Olds. The center is open 12 to 5 p.m. Wednesdays through Saturdays on Cook Avenue in Old Town, Kenai. More information at KenaiArtCenter.org.